youngsters from Liverpool, England. People all over the world are just beginning to talk about the Beatles. My model of business is the Beatles. You know, they were four very talented guys. One, two, three. Hello, my name's Paul McCartney. This is Ringo Starr. This is John Lennon. I'm George Harrison. Thank you all for tuning in to part two of this epic Beatles roundtable episode featuring David Bennett, Tomo Fujita, and Josh Turner. I'm your host, Jack Lawless. In this episode, we're discussing it all from George Martin, the Beatles' influence on modern music, the final Beatles song, Now and Then, and its controversial music video, and much, much more. If you haven't listened to part one of this conversation yet, I highly recommend you check that out first before continuing with this second part. Also, be sure you're following David, Tomo, and Josh on YouTube or your social media. And be sure to subscribe to this podcast so you can be notified when we release a new episode or interview. The links to everyone's channels are in the podcast description. So now sit back, relax, and get ready for the continuation of an incredible discussion about the Beatles. David, you've brought up George Martin a lot in this conversation. Uh, So now I want to ask you all specifically, how do you think George Martin's production and influence played a role in the Beatles' music? Oh, I mean, it just can't be overstated for me. Um, I mean, you know, as David mentioned, the the actual performances that he gave are huge parts of the songs themselves, but... um, You know, the string orchestrations that that he wrote... Um, just the general melding of chamber music and classical music, it wouldn't have worked, I think, through anyone as well as him, maybe. I think that he was just just the right person for what they were doing. Uh, I mentioned the last time I was on, Jack, that I I had heard somewhere that he had come from um, novelty radio production prior to working with the Beatles. He was doing, like, comedy stuff for radio. Um, and they constantly had to come up with new gags and new like weird sounds to to add to the broadcast and that background is just so perfect for a band that had such a sense of humor um i think that he was just able to kind of understand and intuit what they were looking for when it should be serious when it should be huge strings and then when it should be something that's completely wacko and he he balanced that so well i mean i i think that maybe the most important thing that he did though um which I love listening to all the outtakes uh, of songs where you can hear him behind the glass talking to them is uh, guiding them through takes because the Beatles sort of famously would do 30, 40 takes of a song, which like to me is just completely, I I can't imagine trying to give a good performance on my 30th take of something. I think let it be take 28 was the keeper. Like that's insane. Um, And George had the ability to sift through 28 takes, listen to them all in a row and say, yep, that was the one. That was the one that had the right feeling. That was that that was the one that had the tempo that delivered the emotion of the song the best. Like, oh, let's let's you know, let's try a little bit less on the solo section. Oh, you're over singing this like his his intuition for that even um, and his endurance for that, I think, is maybe the most important thing that he brought to what they did. 
he's like a guardian for uh, Beatles and uh, you know even they joke around playing more takes like just said you know I only can take two three takes and you know when I play with the Steve Gadd I had to do one take because he <laughs> does one take you know <laughs> yeah and we recorded you know three songs and uh, two hours you know but um but yeah that's amazing really you know over 20 takes and still encourages them to, do, to make a better take you know and then choose them that's a lot harder work but also string arrangement and song form i'm sure song forms he really give them idea about you know do this way do that way so it's a I think I've heard he's the fifth Beatles like that. You know, he's probably that much influence, control over the whole band. He was a very important person, I think. I I think he was absolutely essential to their success. And that's more evident in the later music where you can really genuinely hear his contributions, whether it's string arrangements or uh, piano performances or whatever. Even in the early music, though, he was making arrangement calls and suggestions like on Can't Buy Me Love. He was the one who suggested take a little bit of the chorus and use that as an intro rather than going straight into the 12 bar form for the verse. Um, but I think what was so unique about George Martin at, at that time is he was somebody who was classically trained, but yet didn't take himself too seriously. Um, case in point, the, the comedy music that Josh was mentioning. Um, there's, there's a lot that said at the time that classical music was still treated as like the true music and the pop and rock that the Beatles were doing was sort of seen as this fad. Um, Abbey Road at the time was EMI studio opened by Elgar, classical composer. It was a classical music studio. The Beatles were just operating out there almost like second class citizens. And I think George Martin was able to appreciate that their music is just as valuable as classical music and could bring all of those um, skills and perspectives and education that he had and introduce the band to a much wider palette of ideas. That's I didn't know that Elgar was responsible for opening Abbey Road. Man, that's one of those... Yeah, the blue plaque on the door. That's what it says. Oh, yeah. man. That's one of those trivia facts that like just makes history kind of shrink for you a little bit. <laughs> it's like when I found out that Prokofiev had done a had done a film score at one point. I'm like, wait, what year is it? Oh, right, yeah, 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 yeah. Lieutenant um, <laughs> Kaiji or whatever it's called. Yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> also, I didn't know George Martin did you know uh, comedy related in the music and like that. And it's the, it's they, part of the reason that the Beatles liked him because he mm. did, uh, did worked with the goons who were kind of similar to like Monty Python with like silly humor. Yeah. And um they were like, oh this guy he can't be that boring because you know he's worked with the goons and, and we love the goons. <laughs> That's cool. So can we take a quick vote here? Is George Martin officially the fifth Beatle? Oh definitely. Yeah. I, yeah, I believe so yeah. I to be honest, I think he's he's arguably my favorite Beatle because like <laughs> if anyone asks which Beatle I am, it's it's George Martin, the guy who's like behind the scenes, quietly just getting on with stuff, shying away from the limelight. <laughs> mm. Yeah, that's cool. One, yeah, a lot of artists have cited the Beatles as inspirations. Like even artists you wouldn't think of really, like the Wu Tang Clan. But when it comes to modern music, how do you think that? The influence of the Beatles is the most evident. Oh, 
I need it. I need a second to think about that because I mean, I, I just, it's one of those things where <laughs> to, to draw, to draw an old comparison, actually, that's a bit like asking like, what's the influence of, you know, Christianity on society in America, right? Like it's just, it's so, it's so omnipresent and it's so infiltrated into the way that we think and move like that that's that's how the Beatles are for for modern music to me you know it's it's you can't just be like oh that sounds like a Beatles song I mean like certainly there are instances of that but I think the way that people think about production the way people think about songwriting the way people think about what makes a successful song um the way that the Beatles contributed to the concept of a of a rock band that wrote all their own music and or like you know that does something that's between kind of like art rock and and like straight rock and roll um, the incorporation of such diverse sounds, uh, the, the studio tricks that they, I mean, like it's literally endless the way that the modern music is impacted by it. Um, yeah, I, one of my favorite examples is, is Toxic by Britney Spears. I, every time I listen to Toxic, I think like, ah, oh, that sounds like a Beatles song. Um, because it's got, you know, it's got the Eastern influences, although they use samples, which I guess the Beatles also sort of pioneered. Um, uses eastern influences it uses samples it's got unusual scales in it but it's also really poppy it's got a lot of curb appeal um and it's a great song so uh it's just yeah it's you you can't escape it like how, how didn't the beatles <laughs> influence music now is kind of how it feels to me yeah like just it's really hard to describe how much how we were influenced by beatles but i think First, four guys, take a look at the band, you know, write the original music, and so many songs, so great. So to me, just like that's, you know, um, principal idea that how to be a good songwriter, how to be a good member of the band, you know, work together. And a good example, you know, my former student, John Mayer, he writes really great songs, you know. And that's, to me, it's like indirectly, but I'm sure, influenced by Beatles, a lot arrangement, you know. Why John plays piano, you know? You know what I mean? Like that, it's already guitar player, but, you know, play piano and just adding, you know, different things. And uh, yeah, to be a great songwriter, I think that's really Beatles, you know? <laughs> so, yeah, you know, I was listening to Corey Wong's podcast, who was actually just a previous guest on, on this podcast. and. Corey was interviewing John Mayer about his new album, Sob Rock. I guess it was a couple years ago. And okay. John actually pointed out that one of his songs was inspired by David Gilmour's guitar solo on Paul McCartney's No More Lonely Nights song from the 1980s. And, it, you know, it really just goes to show you could really pull inspiration from anywhere in a Beatles song, even after they broke up. It's, mm. it's really cool. For example, he, even like John's, you know, he, when he came to me, he wanted to be a number one guitar player. And the end of the semester, he changed his mind because so many great guitar players anyway. So he, he then he said, he said, I think I can really write the good songs because I'm writing a lot of songs. That's when I told him, leave school, just write a song. When you're ready, come back. Guitar is not important. Writing songs is important. <laughs> True, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So it worked. I think the way that Josh put it is is really well put in the sense that it's you can't really remove the Beatles 
um, from history and have a look at what um, we would be left with without the entire thing just collapsing. A bit like how you can't imagine what geopolitics would be like if World War II had ever happened. It's like there would have had to have been another World War II. There would have had to have been another Beatles. Otherwise, it would just be unrecognizable. Um, I, I think when you look at like what music was like, pop music was like at the beginning of the 60s, um, and what it was like at the end of the 60s. Obviously, the Beatles weren't the single artist, you know, moving things forward. There were other artists as well, but they definitely carried a lot, pardon the pun, carried a lot of that weight um, in changing it from just like R&B imitations of, of, of American blues to an art form of itself. They sort of pioneered that. That's a good point, David. Without the Beatles, a lot of people play, still play one for five, you know? Exactly. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. That sort of thing. Well, and actually, and, and further to that point, I think that part of what they did so successfully was they bridged the divide between like, quote unquote, rock and roll of the early days and then, quote unquote, pop music at the end of the 50s, which was basically still like what we now consider the American songbook. You know, they, they what they did was they they created this crazy blend of like the R&B, like early rock and roll sound, plus what had been considered real pop music up to that point. Right. Um, they wrote these things that now be that belong in, you know, songbooks like the fake book or whatever, because because they're so ubiquitous. But um, but it's because they bridge that gap for people, I think, between uh, between what had been previously just thought of as two genres that never met. Mm. Mm. Yeah, so they definitely some, some of, I can't really name the song right away, but some of the song not just rock and roll, it's really R and B, you know, soul, you know. But then they mm -hmm. made it their own, which is really cool. Yeah, almost like really respect, you know, old American music, and they wrote really great songs. Yeah, it's like yeah, it's, it, a lot of their stuff. It's like halfway between like your rollover Beethoven's and then something like. Uh, come fly with me or something like that. You know, it's like right in the middle of those two things is where a lot of the Beatles stuff lives from a songwriting perspective, which is so interesting. Yeah. Yes. And Tomo, now that you mentioned that, I could totally hear a group like the Ronettes singing, I want to hold your hand and having it just, it, it'll probably sound just right. 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 Now, I don't know if you guys have had the chance to listen to the new Beatles song Now and Then, which came out a couple of weeks ago. But if you have, what did you think about the song itself? the use of AI in this song. And while we're on the topic of AI, do you think AI will be used in music a lot going forward? So, uh, so yeah, so, so now and then, um, I have complicated feelings about it. Um, I think I should, I should say that like, to, now and then to me is like, it's like a piece of contemporary art. Um, it's like a piece of conceptual art to me, where on a, on a purely aesthetic level, I, I don't really resonate with it at all. Um, but that doesn't mean that I don't like it necessarily. Um, I there are certain parts of what it represents that I like. I think it's really cool that you know that we that we as Beatles fans have an opportunity to hear all four of them together on something. I think that's a decent approximation of what it might have sounded like had they all been in the same room at the same time. Um, I think it's. I actually don't necessarily have an issue with the use of AI in this context, you know, because really all they were doing was extracting. Um, John's voice from the piano in in the original demo recording, um, which you know I I'm so grateful that we have that, especially on the Get Back documentary, um, especially in some of the remixes that have now been released of the original four track recordings where we can hear them in stereo with the drums and the vocals in the middle. You know, like I'm fine with that. Um, 
what I'm actually not, what crosses into the uncanny valley for me is the music video for now and then, which um, <laughs> places all four Beatles on screen at the same time, but at different ages. Um, and you have uh, George sort of winking cheekily in a Sergeant Pepper's outfit while you have 80 year old Paul standing next to him playing bass. And that just kind of gives me the ick in a way that's difficult to describe. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I don't care for the song aesthetically. I um, I think the original demo is beautiful. Um, it sounds like a like an unfinished song, you know. And I think that part of the um, the recording quality of the demo suits the mood incredibly well. It's very melancholy, um, and I love the demo. Uh, I, lo- I love the co- the original composition, but what they did with it, it just really sounds like a lot of '90s Jeff Lynne. It's absolutely brickwalled just hell like it's so loud and it's so in your face that it doesn't sound at all like any of the earlier Beatles catalog um hearing the young voices try and blend with the old voices is um really just feels like a reminder of mortality to me to me than anything (laughs) and you know and then there's the ethical there's the ethical um the ethical question of that's not even AI related it's the ethical question of um do you do like they could have never had they could have never had John's permission, you know, to 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 do that with that song. Um, and even George, who who worked on it in the '90s, he, he didn't sign off on on the final version. Um, it's uh, it's in it's in a similar vein of you know putting holographic Tupac on stage at Coachella. It's just like I, mm, I don't know, man. Just like pu- putting somebody's name on artwork that's that's changed and then released posthumously is is very uh, fraught moral territory for me. Um, and so. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, like, so I think it's a successful piece of art in that I'm going to be thinking about it a lot. Um, but it's not a successful piece of art to me, just from an aesthetic standpoint. I don't care for it. I, I don't care for the final product. Um, so that's how I feel about it. Yeah, I had I had a really mixed feeling too because I first I saw um like a little bit a documentary part of that, and then I, I listened to the you know video, which is just like a kind of kind of weird to see different age and just almost like great art to put everything together like you know you you just like uh you know almost like uh, you're making amazing thumbnails you know <laughs> but you know what i mean that's that's like i think that technology and uh, ai yes no problem because that's tool to really separate things and then you know you can work on something, uh, or, you know, educational purpose. That's great too. And uh, this definitely resonate to uh, just the original version. Really, like wow, just like mm-hmm. in the room, you know, and then soft, and you can hear everything clearly. That's why you pay attention to listen to more. But then the final one comes up, like yeah, almost like do you really? want to make the music or it's because i do i do business music business like you know um you see like youtube you know my own site or like that and sometimes we make things to get the attention you know you just want to get the attention to do that also i really felt bad that john lennon want to work together if you, you want to release something you know in other words always John Lennon, Paul, you know, those two together sounds great, you know. Mm-hmm. But seems like that's like using leftover material and then 
a few guys just trying to put everything together with the producer or other parts of a music industry people. So I'm not sure really called Beatles, you know, it's just like great project and great art, but just that I think original. Also, when I hear the original, I'm not sure they really follow that course or they just no. changed it, right? They they de they definitely changed some of it, and uh, there was this really strikingly contrasting um, chorus section on the original. That they just changed, they just totally changed that part. So that's the that's the part that's kind of bugs me because sometimes if you if you use somebody's uh, you know um, art leftover art, then you add something around it, not changing it. You know that's the part I felt a little shocked. They changed. John goes like, "Hey man." What did you do? <laughs> you, know? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, yeah. So that's like a really, oh, but only one part, you know, just documentary part is like, wow, this is an amazing bunch of people that spend time together playing music. And that's very rare. Nowadays, very rare. People can really spend hours together making music, you know? So that was, um, that's that's the part from that song. Grab my heart, like wow, that those, uh, you know, all the day, you know, amazing experience. Yeah, I think the the sort of story of the song, um, the the journey it's been on, and the fact it's literally called now and then, and it's and the lyrics are just so poignant, is sort of thing you couldn't write. It's kind of too perfect the story of it, but I do think the song. They, I don't know why they made it sound so pop music. It's like <laughs> the, it begins and you think, ah, here comes Adele, here comes Lewis Capaldi. No, it's John <laughs> Lennon in, a, in an apartment 50 years ago. When you start, you, they obviously they had this great isolation on the vocal. They managed to pull it out of their demo, but it's still a, a lo-fi recording. So the fact that they went with the most hi-fi of hi-fi is so weird. Yeah, I don't know yeah, why yeah. they did that. It's, you know, it's not like you can't make something sound old. You know, Father yeah. John Misty is a great example of a modern artist who sounds like he could have come out in the 70s. And they should have lent into that, and they didn't. So I, I don't really know the motivation there. Um, but on, on a wider point about AI, I think, for me, the only kind of scary bit about AI is making sure that musicians still receive... Um, some sort of credit, some sort of royalty where due um, that music doesn't just become this thing that somehow everybody owns and therefore nobody can make any money from it. Um, but from an aesthetic point of view of like, is AI going to destroy music? I think good music has always been and will always be democratic because people can choose what they listen to now more than ever. If AI leads to great music, then that's great. If AI leads to crap music, then people won't listen to it and it will die a death. So it, it can, I, I'm not worried about that aspect of, of AI. I wouldn't be, I wasn't alive when sample-based music really started to take off in the, in the 80s, but I wouldn't be surprised if there was a similar conversation at that time around, oh, this is going to be the death of music. Nobody's going to record anything original anymore. Everybody's just going to go back and use old samples. But I think that the jury is now pretty conclusive on the idea that sample-based music is has been great for music as a whole. There's bad sample-based music that exists, but by and large, you know, you give artists more tools and they're going to make more interesting things. Um, 
it's it, any anything that's that powerful is going to yield um not only bad art but also probably damage in some regards but i'm 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 willing to be optimistic about you know ai in terms of its in terms of its capabilities i think that you know had they had they said oh john only wrote one verse for this song and we've used we fed you know a language model all of his other compositions and we, it's written a second verse like that would have been problematic right but that's part of what's interesting about this moment with AI is that um, we're finding in real time where the lines are of what we're comfortable with and what we're not. Um, and this particular use I'm, I'm comfortable with, um, but there are certainly plenty that I'm sure we'll see over the coming years that will be less uh, sanguine. The, the AI thing, I find like that the way that AIs learn, um, like you said, where like you feed in examples of what you want them to create, that's a really interesting moral conundrum of, um, you could easily point to that and be like, well, that's copyright infringement. You're using our thing to make something new. But the Beatles basically took Buddy Holly's um, 20, right. 24 songs and right. spun them out into new songs. So like that wasn't copyright infringement, but it was the same process. So it'll be interesting to see how that gets litigated over the, the coming years. Educational purpose, like you know, if you took one part and you listen to the drum parts, you know, guitar parts, bass part. You surprise how much they're not in tune sometimes, you know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, I know there was a lot of people like you know nowadays. Uh, you know, people think oh, it has to be in tune, or sometimes people care so much about time. You know, I mean, time is important, but just a little bit ahead or a little late, and they try to fix it. But mm -hmm. if you listen to all the stuff, it's a little bit. A little bit out of tune, but that makes kind of stereo effect in a way, you know. So that's mm -hmm. why uh, just educational purpose, I think, not too but bad idea to you know listen to the parts. Yeah, okay. to use that to listen to my parts, I think you find more mistakes. <laughs> <my parts. laughs> yeah. I also, I also think you know uh, the way they've been using it with the remixes is really interesting, and I, I continue to have really mixed feelings about the remixes. Um, because like there's a part of me that just screams like this is historical revisionism you know like some of the people who worked on these things in the first place are still alive and we're just changing the choices that they made uh as a part of this piece of art that's like it feels like if you were to, you know when when uh you know michelangelo is still alive to just be like you know god's biceps on the roof of the sistine chapel look a little weird like let's maybe we should just go <laughs> tweak that you know so, like you just le leave it alone like that's what the, you know that's what the piece of art is but at the same time, like, I, so for me, the litmus test that I've kind of tried to use with all the remixes that are only possible because of AI is do, am I feeling the song more or less when I, when I hear the remixed version, you know, do I, do I resonate with it more or less? And it's interesting because it's really split down the middle, even within, even within single albums. I generally prefer, for instance, the 09 remasters of Abbey Road. Um, but I love the 2018 remixes of the White Album. I think they're outstanding. Um, I like some of the the new remixes on Red and Blue, but then some of them are a, a disaster, in my opinion. I think the new stereo remix of Love Me Do, if you haven't listened to that one, it is bad. I, th I think they ruined Love Me Do on the remix. They just cut the tambourine out on the last verse, oh. for instance, for no reason. Wow. There's like kick drum, there are kick drum hits that are missing. Um, it's a really, it's really weird. Um, so yeah, so it's AI, it's the feelings are developing as we go. That's actually really interesting that you brought up the remixes because I've been listening to them too, just like the Red Album and the Blue Album recent releases. And my feelings are, are a little mixed as well. 
there are some songs, like you said, like the 2018 White Album remixes where I'm, I'm blown away by it. And then there are songs like, you know, I Am the Walrus or or She Loves You. And I mean, She Loves You, in my opinion, is is probably the worst remix. I, I think it sounds really mm. just uh, cluttered. Yeah, same. Um, yeah. But yeah, I mean, there's cool things also that I get to hear. Like at the end of I Feel Fine, you can hear... One of the one of the Beatles barking like a dog, which I thought was a little fun. Um, how about you, David and Tomo? Did you guys listen to the remixes yet? I have not um, had listened to them yet. Um, and generally speaking, I don't get particularly um, excited about mixes, uh, different mixes. It is interesting to hear the different choices. Um, but what I was thinking is, it's I guess the sort of following on from what Josh was saying. You could argue that when you remix this stuff, you're not actually tampering with history because the original is still there if you want it. But actually, the more I think about it, how will follow like future generations know which listen which version they're listening to? It makes me think of Star Wars, where like I didn't know growing up right. that I was watching like the 1997 remaster where George Lucas shoved a bunch of weird aliens in, uh-huh. and then now the idea that that isn't the true Star Wars is like oh I've been kind of defrauded. Right, you know, and it's like, and the new and the new versions of Star Wars, like the one you can watch on Disney Plus, like it looks amazing and the colors are great and everything's so sharp. But at the same time, I just kind of want to be able to access the original, mm-hmm. and and the one that's on Disney Plus is the one that's going to probably be preserved for history. You know, I think in in many cases there are now three or four versions of the same Beatles song on streaming services, and for people who aren't like us, like you know, super nerds about like, oh, I prefer the mono, but like the you know, or the Glenn Johns mix versus the whatever. Like, um, it does matter, I think, when you produce more and more versions because like it's fun to have both, but at the same time, if only one is ultimately going to kind of uh, percolate down, you know, through the the topsoil of history, it's just like, well, but is it the original? Is it the is it mm. the one that the artist intended, or is it just one of these other kind of opinions on the matter? Yeah, and I saw a I can't remember what video it was recently, but somebody maybe it was like a beatles quiz or something and for a couple of the let it be tracks they'd use the let it be naked tracks which are Mm. very much like different historical artifacts than the originals and there is like context that needs to be understood there and yeah that 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 nuance will get lost as time goes by and people will miss miss out on the detail of of like you know you couldn't have stereo when the Beatles first released their first singles, but people will forget those little nuances. Yeah. So as we as we approach the end of our discussion here, um, I, I wanted to see if you guys could summarize the Beatles using one word, and if you could, which word would you choose? Uh, for, for me, I've, I've thought about it before a bit. It, it's, it would just be iconic, because I do think, kind of similar to what we were just saying now, saying a moment ago, in 500 years time and a thousand years time how much of the culture we listen to now the music we listen to now will survive because you know recorded music is barely 100 years old and it already feels like we have a glut of it but i do think the beatles will be perhaps you know give it enough time maybe the only cultural musical artifact that survives of the 20th century and and i'm fine with that but i think that would define them as as iconic Hmm. yeah and actually um i think i would circle back to one of the first questions um, that you that you asked Jack about um, what what defined them the most or what changed the most throughout you know the, the arc of their time, uh, and so my word would be fearless, just because I think part of what made them so iconic um, was 
just the way that they just never stopped pushing boundaries and uh, and never stopped defying conventions and trying new things and and setting new precedents with every single release that they put out. Um, there, you know, I I think. Um, well, curious would be a runner-up word for me, um, just because they were, they had such curiosity about what was possible and what they could make, and uh, and they always pursued it, um, even when there were pressures not to. Um, but but yeah, fearless. I think I'll stick with that one. Yeah, Josh, that's cool, huh? fearless. Yeah, but to me, to me, like you know, it's really friends because I mean, you everyone we have a lot of fans, you know, but. To me, it's really fine if you can have a really great friends count by both hands. That's amazing, you know. And to me, those guys just met in the right place, right time, maybe, but and just kept continue to make a life together as a musician and make music. And I think that's almost impossible. Mm. Like impossible means like very, very rare. Just like David said, that's probably last long time to you know as a amazing example of four people made music you know so to me like friends that's the first otherwise i mean sometimes people say who's the best one from beatles to me it's just the band it's you know that it's yeah. strong yeah you know and then of course, everybody favorite, you know, Paul's writing is great. But to me, Paul's writing also influenced by John Lennon. And speaking of writing, to me, strongest to me, maybe George, because he doesn't get opinion from other people. He's, to me, it seems like he's just write his own thing. He came up with his own idea, and everybody follows yeah. him instead of telling him what to do, you know. That's my thought. <laughs> <laughs> So, uh, Josh, what are you up to now? Are you involved in any projects coming out? Oh, yeah. Um, so I just finished um, the production of uh, a full-length album with my band, The Bygones, that, uh, that I've just started recently. Um, we are an uh, indie folk duo with tints of jazz and country music. Um, Allison Young is the other member of that band. Um, and we're going to be releasing our album next March and we're going to be, um, touring the U S um, in April and May of next year. Um, so right now we're just uh, in getting ready for all the run up to that, um, getting the vinyl production together and working on a PR campaign and, uh, things like that. So, uh, yeah, getting, getting the bygones off the ground is, is my project and hopefully we'll be announcing more tour dates uh, in the U S and elsewhere later next year. Awesome. Well, I can't wait to go to one of your shows, uh, if you're playing in New York. Oh, thanks man. Me too. Yeah, I love to go to it. So, yeah, man. And uh, Tomo, how about you? What are you, what projects are you involved in right now? Oh yeah, right now um, I'm playing my own band uh, with Oznoy, Will Lee, and Sean Pelton. This is the second time at uh, Bitter End, New York City, and then this is gonna be uh, December seventh and Thursday night. I'm so excited. And I just came back from China. This is crazy too. Somebody, four years ago, somebody said, you have a lot of fans in China. I have no idea. But once you go there, they have their own thing. They have their own, like, you know, YouTube, own, everything, own thing. So you don't know till you get there. And that was surprising. I mean, that was so amazing that I played the first time at the Blue Note in Shanghai. First night, I had 450 people. Second night, 350 Man. people. And the longest sign ever I have done. 
you know, and that was amazing. So that's like next one. Next year, I'm going to do a China tour, Shanghai, Hong Kong, Beijing, the one more city, and then maybe Japan. And um, then I'm also I'm writing instrumental. This is really interesting, too. I work with a arranger who works with with, with uh, Yoasobi. He's, a, he's one of my fans, I found out. So, so I write a song, but I don't write a song. This is unique, too. I made a video, and he listened to it without writing. He arranged it, just yeah, like a Beatles, in a way. Just because I learned, yeah, I learned this. He's a great arranger, and I asked him, how do you get music from singer he said just singing with the chords that's it no sheet and that's my new way to work with him because writing so that way it's like free and he take different way that i write sometimes he you know confused by but then that's good you know one part i play minor he plays dominant and sounds great you know Something like this. So it's several different projects, and, and I'm still teaching at the Berkeley, 30th year. Amazing. Still going. Awesome. <laughs> David, how about you? Are you working on any new projects at the moment? Please tell me some new videos are on the way because I'm really excited to see your new videos. Yeah. There's yeah, there's ton. I I've kind of been trying to ramp up videos a bit recently, um, experimenting with doing twice a week, which has been quite costly on my energy but it's it's been oh, great for, it's great for the channel um so yeah it's it's hard to list how many i've got one that i'm excited for is um looking at how most countries in the world don't use a b c d e f g for their notes and instead use do re mi fa so less t c um and um and that's something i i never really thought about but actually i think a lot of people in english speaking countries don't realize so that's something that's a video that's coming up and also, sort of the project that I've been mean, dragging along for the last couple of years is some original songs that I'm planning on releasing in the first part of next year, um, which will be the first time I've sort of done original songs since I started the channel. So, kind of excited to see what the response is to that. That's awesome. Are those going to be just instrumentals, or will they feature your vocals as well? They've got vocals as well. So they, um, you know, I, I started music as a songwriter, and then somehow went on a whole journey and then I wound up back here again. So um, yeah, it's been overdue to, to do some actual songwriting, but um, I've been sitting on these songs for a few years now and I'm ready to release them. That's awesome, man. I can't wait to hear them. Yeah, it's fantastic. Thank you. Well, guys, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I am the biggest fan of all three of you and I really, really enjoyed our conversation. So thank you again. Thanks, Jack. Me too. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Yeah. And it's having nice to meet all of you guys. Yeah, you guys too. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, David. Thanks so much. Bye. Bye. I played it there, Charlie. <laughs> <laughs> okay, put the red lights off. This is Johnny Rhythm just saying good night to you all. <laughs>